there's, you know, there's things going on in the world that, especially in the Middle East, that, um, you know, tonight we're going to see the title of the message tonight is What God's Wrath Looks Like. And we're going to be in Revelation 16. We're going to cover verses 12 through 21. And you know, when you look around the world, the earth and a lot of people in it are crying out for God's wrath. And the Bible says, as in the days of Noah, so it will be in the end times. And sometimes I think, oh Lord, what in the world were the days of Noah like? They Obviously they were worse than they are now in, in the world. And if you think about that, you know, the, the, the pre-flood world, you know, if I could go back in time, I, I would go back to then and just see what it was like and be amazed, I'm sure. But I'm sure you've all heard about the lady in Kentucky that refused to, to give the marriage licenses for gay marriage. And, and there's a point in all of that for us as Christians. You know, Paul and, and, and Peter especially, both of them talk about we need to obey the authorities. But the point in all of that is, is that when man's authority conflicts with God's authority, we stand on God's authority. We disobey authority. We disobey man's authority. We, 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 we cannot go against what God says. And so, you know, it doesn't go against God's authority if you get pulled over for doing 90 at the bottom passing lane, like a lot of people do. We're subject to that authority. Amen? We're subject to a lot of man's authority. But, you know, let me, let me just give you an, uh, an example that's even clearer. You know, this this lady was an elected official and she stood on God's word. And she went to jail for it. If the United States government came out, ladies, and said, you are only allowed to have two children. And if you get pregnant a third time, you have to have an abortion. That is going against God's word. And you would not be under the authority of man to, to obey that law. And, and that's the difference. And, and guys, you know, I, I, I got saved in the year 2000. And God put it on my heart very quickly in less than a year that all of this was coming, that Christians were going to go to jail in the United States of America for their faith. And when I shared that with people, I, I was told that I was a lunatic and that I was crazy. We live in America. That could never happen. Well, guys, it, it is happening. 
and it and it's going to get worse. And so, you know, you guys that are out there tonight, you need to decide who's going to fill the pulpit when all your pastors are in jail. <laughs> and then come and see us. <laughs> Empty church, whatever, you know. I had a prison ministry for about a year down in West Valley. Started out seeing one one young lady, and the next thing I knew, I was seeing six ladies a week. And did that for a year, except when I was in Africa. And I had unlimited, as a pastor, I had unlimited time. I didn't have to do the telephone thing. I got face-to-face. And uh, that was kind of an outside prison ministry, because we did have a metal screen in between us. But hey... An inside prison ministry is even better. Amen? <laughs> really be face-to-face with, with uh, the prisoners that Jesus commands us to visit. So, before I get way too ahead of myself, we do have some announcements. And then we'll pray and we'll get into the message. Ladies' Day Out, September 25th, Friday. This is being organized by Julie Vasquez, so it is going to be a fun day at the beach with bike riding, shopping, eating, of course, shopping, and eating. I'm just reading what she wrote, okay? (laughs) Eating is there twice, so. (laughs) And it will be riding bikes from Balboa to Bolsa Chica Beach. I know where Balboa is, but... I don't have a clue about Bolsa Chica. And while you're riding, you're going to have an opportunity to stop, to rest, and eat. <laughs> so anyways, um, see Julie for more information on that if, if you want to uh, enjoy that fellowship. Food ministry. Mary is such a faithful servant in the food ministry. And she is going to need more help. We're kind of winding down for the year. Um, We will do it till November to get people through Thanksgiving and then then start it up again later on next year. But Mary needs a lot of help, and so pray about that. Um, She goes and gets truckloads of food for almost nothing. Every month, you know, when we have our board meeting, it's the same thing. This many people fed, this many bags of food handed out, and way under budget, <laughs> which is a blessing. She's a shopper. Okay, mark this next announcement down, guys, because there's been so much interest in that, in this. September 20th, we are having baptism at Calvary Chapel Christian Camp. It is going to be a potluck. Baptism is going to be in the pool, and we're going to get started, kick it off around 2.30 p.m. So mark that on your calendars. If anybody wants to come and talk about baptism and, and, and what it means, I'm in the office all week long. If you feel more comfortable with one of the other pastors, please go to them and, and, and just counsel about baptism because it 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 is a it is a serious step 
in your walk with Jesus and in your faith with Jesus. Identifying with him. Dying. Symbolizing dying and being resurrected from the dead. And so, mark that on your calendar. It's always fun. It's always a good time. Women's Bible study is going to be starting up Tuesday, September 22nd, 930 to 1130. Here are some needs. Need help with the children's program. So if anybody feels led to work with the kids, and it's not just babysitting, it's, it's really doing Bible study with them. And, you know, guys, I've been teaching Sunday school for 15 years. I did take a year off, so 14 years um, at, at, at this church. And, and <laughs> I just can't tell you enough how much I'm blessed to be teaching the kids but mostly to be taught by them. That is the key. Sometimes I'm like, you need to be up here teaching. (laughs) So we're going to need nursery care for babies, and then also um, some PowerPoint help, and that's going to be with uh, Teresa Summers. See her for that. And these are paid positions. And so... Don't let that be your sole motivation. Let the kids be the motivation. But it is something that we feel led to as, as, a, as a church to um, compensate people for their time for that. Amen? Anybody know anything I forgot? I can't think of anything. Hmm? I'm good? I was waiting for you to speak up, Luke. <laughs> Announcements are crazy. We try to get them in early. <laughs> but then Sundays you come up, Wednesdays you come up, and there's stuff here. And that's okay. So let's pray before we get into our study. Heavenly Father, as we look at some hard things tonight, Lord, your wrath upon this earth as you judge this earth and the evil in it. God, we cry out, not for the judgment, Lord. We would rather see the earth, all the earth, come to a saving knowledge of you, Jesus. But Lord, we also know that sin is so offensive to you, Lord. Your word says that you cannot even look upon sin. That's why you turned away your face from Jesus as he became sin. And so, Lord, we know that these judgments are true. We know that these judgments are righteous, Lord, and that in this day, the great and terrible day of the Lord, these judgments will indeed be righteous from a righteous and holy God. And so, Lord, minister to us as we look at these things tonight. Speak to our hearts, Lord. And, Lord, may we pray diligently, fervently for this world, 
for the world that you created, Lord. Nothing, Lord, that is going on in this world that is evil is your intent. But yet, you allow it. And Lord, sometimes that is very hard to understand and comprehend. But Lord, we trust in you. We have faith in you. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Revelation 16, we're at verses 12 through 21. Last week we began the bowl judgments. This week we're going to be we're going to be looking at the sixth angel pouring out his bowl in judgment. And verse 12 says, Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. And its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. Now, the river Euphrates, you understand, has always been a, a, a crucial military, uh, strategic, natural defense, especially for Rome. This, the river Euphrates during the Roman times was much bigger than it is today. It was much longer. It was approximately 1,800 miles long. And anywhere from 300 yards to 1,200 yards wide. And if, if you think back during those times, you know, they didn't have the um, Army Corps of Engineers that could come and put those floating boats across and, and, and go across in a matter of a day. It, it was a huge task to cross a river that big. And so that was a natural defense for Rome from the armies from the east, and they depended on that. And so the, the, the verse here says that the Euphrates dries up so that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. If the Euphrates was dried up today, it would be a massive straight road for an invasion from the east. You could have China, India, Japan, Pakistan. They could all join together and move easily down the Euphrates River if it was dried up. It would be a straight road, like the Autobahn. Well, Autobahn's not all that straight. I've driven on it, but um, it would be easy for the kings of the East to come through there. And it's not that they're coming through there to invade Israel. It's not that they're coming through there to do anything, but God is drawing them to the battle of Armageddon. And, you know, you might think, well, how does God do that? How does God draw them to, to this? You know, during the battle of Gog and Magog, the Bible says that God put a hook in their mouth to turn them to that battle. That means that God is going to pull them in, and He's going to do that same thing. And so, you know, when you study for a message, it, it can be really a lot of fun to study for a message. 
just reading what some of the commentators um, write. And uh, a lot of times some of the commentators are giving speculation. They're giving opinions. They use their imagination. And I read some pretty funny things about the, you, you know, the, the river Euphrates being dried up how it would, could be dried up by men and not supernaturally. There were theories that I read of, okay, well, you know, God is going to eliminate the ice and snow on Mount Ararat. And Mount Ararat is the source of the Euphrates River. It is always covered with snow and ice. And so that melting snow and ice is what feeds. It's, it's the, the, the fountainhead of the Euphrates River. But what was funny was that here in the midst of all of these supernatural judgments, one of the commentators wrote, God is going to get rid of the ice and snow on Ararat. He's going to expose the ark. And then everybody's going to say, oh, wow, God is real. Well, if, if they're not believing God is real after all of these supernatural judgments, then man is a lot stupider than I thought he was. Because God has given them plenty of proof up until this point. The supernatural plagues that, they, that they've been going through. And there were also some wild speculations on who the kings of the East might be. But you know, guys, I, I have to hold to my original teachings that I I mentioned last week is that God's word says what it means and it means what it says. There's no mystery here. There's nothing to, to try to figure out. God dries up the Euphrates supernaturally. This is not something that, you know, the kings of the East are going to wait and say, you know, they're going to, they're going to shut down all those dams that have been built on the Euphrates, and we've got to wait for it to dry up before we can use it. God's going to do it supernaturally. That, that's who He is. And it's not hard for Him. And so, we all know that in order to interpret Scripture, we refer or defer to other Scripture. And so, we'll look at the kings of the East. Verses 13 through 14 says, and I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons, performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world, including the kings of the east, to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. And I want you to notice that there's three persons here who have these demons coming out of them, emanating from them. The dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. You know, guys, this is the false trinity. During this time... The Antichrist is, is, is doing all he can to 
emulate or or to um, symbolize or act like God. He wants, we all know, Satan wants to be exalted above God. And so he's, he's doing the things that God did. God is a trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Here we have the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. The false trinity. And it says frogs. You know, if you think literally... <laughs> What do you think about a frog jumping out of a guy's mouth and it sits there and goes, Rabbit. <laughs> well, that's not scary, as my three-year-old granddaughter would say, scary, Papa, scary. And so these are demons, demonic beings. We don't know exactly what they look like, but we do know that they look like frogs. And they are sent out to draw the world into a battle that is a battle between Satan and Jesus Christ. The battle of Armageddon. And God is drawing them miraculously. And they're being provided this road down the Euphrates River. Dried up. Armageddon is also called in the original language Megiddo. And it is a place. You can go there today. And it is, it is mentioned through Scripture. It's north of Samaria in Israel, and it's southeast of the Sea of Galilee. And if you look at pictures of it on the Internet, you can just type in Megiddo, and you'll find all kinds of pictures. And what you will see is... Huge, vast plains where you could easily fit many large armies. And like I said, it's an actual place. And there are biblical battles that were fought there. The judge Deborah had her victory over Sisera at Megiddo. Gideon and his 300 kind of like Thermopylae and, you know, the 300 Spartans, but Gideon and his 300 defeated the Midianites at Megiddo, who the Bible tells us were numbered as the sands of the sea and the stars of the sky. A huge army. And a battle between Pharaoh and Josiah was also fought there. And not only biblical battles, but historical battles over the centuries. Over 200 battles have been fought in that region from 1468 B.C., which was Pharaoh Tutmosis III, all the way up to 1917, which was Lord Allenby of the British. And so you, you can see that this is a historical place for battles. And once again, it's going to be a place for a final battle. The Battle of Armageddon. And it's interesting, you know, verse 13 says that God has granted demons the power to perform signs and wonders. And you might think, well, well, why? 
<laughs> Why is God allowing those demons to do that? It's for mankind to be deceived. When mankind looks at signs and wonders, you know, and that's a common thing when you're witnessing to someone, well, if God would just show me a sign, if God would just work a miracle, you know, all we have to do is open our eyes to see miracles. I'll share one with you. This, is, this happened last Sunday, and I shared this with a few other people. We had a six-year-old girl in, in our Sunday school class for a service. And her grandma told us that <clears throat> she said, she's not supposed to be here. When she was, when her mom was pregnant with her, the doctor said that she had massive defects in her heart and that most likely, high percentage, she was going to be stillborn. And if she wasn't, the maximum that she was going to live was two weeks. And so they were prepared for that. They could have aborted her, but they didn't. And you know what? God honored that. She's six years old sitting here in our Sunday school class. She had many doctors that said, we don't want anything to do with that. There's no chance. There's no hope. We're not even going to try to operate on her. And so grandma or, or mom and dad started doctor searching, and they finally found a doctor that said, we're going to do our best. I'm going to do, I'm going to do my best. And God guided his hands, I'm sure. And there she was, six years old, bopping around the room, just having a good old time. And what a beautiful little girl. All the miracles that people cry out for are there. And we can see them and experience them. We just have to have open eyes and open ears. And you know, demons and, and Satan having the power of signs and wonders is biblical. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 and 14 says, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. I have really pondered that verse. And for those that may have come out of the Catholic faith, like I did, I remember sitting in church and being amazed as the priest talked about and showed us slides of Our Lady of Lords. Anybody heard of that? No ex-Catholics in here? Okay, there you go. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay to come out of the closet. <laughs> but I was always amazed that... This little girl went to this grotto and the Virgin Mary appeared to her. And people were healed of being crippled and different illnesses. And 
the healings evidently go on up until this day. And if you see slides of it, people that come there to be healed, you will see hundreds and hundreds of sets of crutches and wheelchairs that people that, that say that they were healed have left there as evidence that they were able to walk away. And I don't want to offend anybody, but, you know, movies have been made of this event. And I've, and I've seen one particular one. It was black and white. And it was, it was of that event. And I say event because I believe it really happened. I absolutely believe it was a true event. And I absolutely believe that that little girl who claimed to have seen the Virgin Mary there was telling the truth. And today it's, it's a place of pilgrimage. People, you know, Catholics from all over the world travel there to see this grotto, to just experience it. But what was that? What is Satan's goal? To take our eyes off of Jesus, the true Savior. In my opinion, I don't know if this is absolutely true, but I, what I do know is that that wasn't Mary. It, it couldn't have been. It does nothing but take our eyes off of Jesus. And I believe this was an instance of Satan appearing as an angel of light to deceive, to take people's eyes off of Jesus. And, and you know, it brings us to a point of decision in those cases. Like I said, I was amazed. I thought, oh, the Virgin Mary, oh my gosh. You know, and I was a little kid being raised as a Catholic, and I absolutely believed that the Virgin Mary did those things. But Joshua 24:15, you know, Joshua talks about this choice. And being deceived. And he says, and if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We all know that Israel, the nation, was deceived by idols and false gods. And today, all of mankind is faced with that question, whom will you serve? Choose this day whom you will serve. Will mankind be deceived into idol worship? We see it. We see it worldwide. False gods. Idol worship. But we pray even though we know the book of Revelation, even though we know the end of the story, God wants us to pray for the world, that the world, their eyes would be open, their ears would be open to the truth of Jesus Christ, the one and only Savior. And so we continue in Revelation, the next verse, and Jesus says, Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments. And we're going to talk about garments here a little bit. 
lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. These words, these are Jesus' words. If you have that red letter Bible, those words in Revelation are going to be in red letters. And so we know that this is Jesus speaking. So who's he speaking to? He's speaking to us. He's speaking to believers. He's not speaking to the rest of the world. He's telling us, be prepared. How many parables were about that same thing? Be prepared. Be watchful. The, the, the parable of the ten virgins was all about being prepared, staying watchful, keeping your eyes open, not falling asleep. And Jesus is giving us that warning. Stay awake. Keep your eyes on me. Keep your eyes on your true Savior, the one and only living God. 1 Thessalonians 5.2 says, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. And we saw last week, this day of judgment is called the day of the Lord or the great and terrible day of the Lord. And Jesus says it's going to come as a thief in the night. Second Peter 3.10 says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. And so Jesus talks about our garments. And I hope you all have your garments on tonight. I call them our Jesus clothes. You know, you got on your Jesus clothes. And if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have on your Jesus clothes. Amen? Everybody's got on their garment. Everybody's got on their Jesus clothes. Ecclesiastes 9.8 says, Let your garments always be white, and let your head lack no oil. That is a reference to be in the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, when kings were anointed with oil, priests were anointed with oil, it was a symbol of being anointed with the Holy Spirit. And so let your head, your head lack no oil. Isaiah 61.10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. Jesus' clothes. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. So I already said that, you know, that our garment is our Jesus clothes. And so what is that garment? How, did, how do we get it? How do we get our set of Jesus clothes? We come to that personal relationship with Jesus Christ. 
In Galatians 3.27, Paul says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. We've put on Christ's righteousness. That is what our garments are. And I'm, I'm, I'm referring to a lot of verses here tonight, but as I said last week, there is so much in the Old Testament and the New Testament that refers to this day of judgment and the things that we read in Revelation. We can almost pinpoint everything that is going on by what has been written in the New Testament as well as the Old Testament prophecies about this great and terrible day of the Lord. Isaiah one eighteen says, Come now, God speaking to Isaiah. And I like this because I can be really hard headed with God sometimes. And I always remember the opening of this verse this verse and God speaking to my heart saying, Come now, let us reason together. Says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Isaiah 64, 6. I don't think anybody will be offended in here. <laughs> but we are all like an unclean thing. And all our righteousness, righteousnesses, which by the way isn't in spell check, are like filthy rags. You know, the literal translation of that is women's menstrual cloths. That is the way God sees us in our own righteousness. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. That is our own garment. That is our human clothes. But when we put on our Jesus clothes, God sees us as white as snow, like the brand new wool of a sheep. Jesus says, blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And so without our Jesus clothes, without that garment, we are naked and ashamed in our own righteousness. And God sees and he knows our unrighteousness. It, we can't hide. We can't go in a closet. We can't be behind closed doors. We can't go anywhere that God has to look for us. You know, I wonder where Chuck is. I wonder where he's doing. Man, he escaped me again. He's probably doing something bad. Hebrews 4.13 says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him. And this is the scary part, guys, for us as Christians. We know that we're not going to go through the judgment. Praise God. There's a lot I could be judged for. But for us, this is something that I think about often. We're open to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. 
Now, I don't know what that's going to be like. But it's scary to think I'm going to be standing before Jesus and he's going to interrogate me. And, and you know, really all he has to do is say one sentence to me. All he has to do is say, what were you thinking? (laughs) And and that's going to cover it all. (laughs) What were you thinking, Chuck? And so let's continue in, in, uh, with verses 17 through 21. Then the seventh angel, this is the seventh bowl judgment, poured out his bowl into the air. And a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, It is done. The judgment on the earth has ended. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings. And there was a great earthquake. Such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. Now the great city was divided into three parts. And the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon was remembered before God. <laughs> My computer's like, I told you I wasn't good at this. And great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Then every island fled away. And the mountains were not found. And great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. Now we know from Scripture that that it is Jesus who executes judgment on the earth. And so when it says that the voice of God came from the temple, we know that the Father gave that authority of judgment to Jesus. And it's interesting that Jesus didn't say from the temple, it is finished. He said it is done. And you know, in His mercy, He is ending the judgment as we saw last week. If those days were not cut short, there would be no living thing left alive. And so Jesus says, it is done. And it is reminiscent of Jesus' words on the cross. It is finished. But there's a difference here. It is finished was referring to Himself. Yes, it refers to judgment, just like it is done refers to judgment. But the difference is is that the judgment, when Jesus said it is finished, was the judgment of all of our sins placed on Him as He became sin on the cross. It wasn't that the sins were put on Him. He literally became sin itself. It didn't mean He sinned. It was our sins, and He became our sins. And God's wrath and judgment upon that sin was put upon Jesus Christ. And He said, 
it is finished. That judgment upon our sin was finished. And it's available to all that live on this earth. Anybody that seeks His mercy and His grace and His forgiveness, it is finished means so much to us. But the difference here when Jesus says it is done, He's speaking not of judgment upon Himself. He's speaking of the judgment of sin that is put on those who refuse to take His grace and mercy. And the judgment is placed upon themselves. You see the difference? Judgment on Jesus, judgment on themselves. They earned that same judgment that was placed upon Jesus for us. They believed that they could be their own Savior. They believed that the Antichrist was their Savior. And so now they are being judged for their own sins. And we continue on and we see that next, the next bowl was poured out into the air. And when you think about it, you think, well, why? Why was judgment poured out onto the air? Well, you know, in Ephesians 2, 2, We're told that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. And Satan himself is being judged. The judgment of this bowl is being poured out into the air upon Satan and his allies, his demons, and all that is in the air. And it tells us, you know, our verse tells us that there was a great earthquake And this was such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. Now think about it. An earthquake so great that the mountains are flattened. The islands disappear. This is an earthquake that, you know, literally scientists, from what I've read, they've said that it's just about impossible for an earthquake to occur that is over a 10.0. Well, I think this is going to be like a, a I don't know, a 10 million point oh for mountains to be flattened and islands to disappear. And so in these final judgments, God shakes the earth with a, a, a tremendous earthquake. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 25 through 29 says, See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. And it continues and says, Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken. Mountains, islands, things that are made. As of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken 
may remain. Make sense? Islands, mountains, they all disappear, but there has to be things that remain that will not be shaken. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. And we're all familiar with this, and this is an also scary thing. It doesn't refer to us, but we're seeing this happen in these final days of judgment. For our God is a consuming fire. And so now we come to Babylon. Our verse says, Great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of wine of the fierceness of his wrath. When you look at the original languages here, fierceness and, and wrath, they combine to make God's wrath a lot more serious. It's like wrath, wrath. Two wraths. One wrath plus one wrath equals two wraths, making it really bad. So fierceness in the Greek is thymos. And it means a passionate outburst of anger, of God's wrath. And wrath in the Greek is orge, describing a standing state of anger. And so when you combine thymos and orge, in the original Chuck language, it means really, 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 really mad. Really, 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 really wrathful. This is God's outpouring of His divine judgment upon the earth. Jeremiah 50.13 says, Because of the wrath of the Lord, she shall not be inhabited, speaking of Babylon, but she shall be wholly desolate. Everyone who goes by Babylon shall be horrified and hiss at all her plagues. And finally, in verse 21 we're told that great hail from heaven fell upon men. Each hailstone about the weight of a talent. That's about 100 pounds. That's a big hailstone. Let's put that in perspective. And you know, when these hailstones fell, man still responded in utter, unrepentant depravity. And they blaspheme God because of the hail. So when we put it, that into perspective, let's look at what a hailstone of two pounds or less, what kind of damage can that do? In 1942, I, I of course got this off a website about weather phenomena. In 1942, a British forest guard in Rupkund, India, made an alarming discovery. Some 16,000 feet above sea level, at the bottom of a small valley, was a frozen lake absolutely full of skeletons. That summer, ice melt revealed even more skeletal remains floating in the water and lying haphazardly around the lake's edges. Something horrible had happened here. In 2004, recently, 
National Geographic team went to that site and they dated the remains to around 850 A.D. And what they discovered was that everyone at, they termed the Skeleton Lake, had died from blows to the head and shoulders caused by blunt, round objects about the size of cricket balls. About that big if you've played cricket before. And so the team concluded that in 850 A.D., this group of around 200 travelers was crossing the valley when they were caught in a sudden and severe hailstorm. And in that area, the peoples that live there, they have an ancient folk song. And it describes a goddess so enraged at outsiders who defiled her mountain sanctuary that she rained death upon them with ice stones as hard as iron. So hail killed every last one of them. And we can... Whoa, my computer just left. On May 1st in 1888, this is recorded as the deadliest hailstorm on record. Hailstones are said to have killed 246 people in Moradabad, Moradabad, India. Now, there's some debate about how many were killed directly by the impact of hail, and you know what? It really doesn't matter because they were all killed as a result of the hail. They believe that some were knocked out, and then they were buried by the hail, and they froze to death. And so it was hail. But the death toll was huge. And so when we look back in Scripture, and you can write these down if you want and read them later, God has historically used hail as a tool of judgment against his enemies. Against Egypt, Exodus 9.24, the Canaanites, Joshua 10, verse 11, and apostate Israel, Isaiah 28.2, and Gog and Magog, Ezekiel 38.22. And in each of these incidents, God rained down hail from heaven as a tool of judgment. He wasn't using it as a warning. He wasn't using it as, you know, hey, I'm still here. You need to worship me. Get away from your false idols. I'm sending hail to give you a warning. No, it was done. He was judging them. In all of these instances, when God rained down that, that, that hail from heaven. And so tonight, let's end with this. One of my favorite writers, and if, if, if you ever get a chance, one of the, it's probably the best book, Christian book I've ever read by Charles Spurgeon, and it's, and it's titled Letters to My Students. And it is amazing. That book took me to the highest top of the mountains, rejoicing, saying yes. And then... Two pages later, I'm like down in the valley going, oh, I'm so worthless. That's the kind of book it is. (laughs) So I highly suggest it. But Charles Spurgeon said this. I have known people to say, and you know, we're talking about judgment and affliction and and all of these things that that they're going through in, in this judgment upon the earth. And Charles Spurgeon says, I have known people to say, well, If I were afflicted, I might be converted. 
If I lay sick, I might be saved. Spurgeon says, oh, do not think so. Sickness and sorrow of themselves are no helps to salvation. Pain and poverty are not evangelists. Disease and despair are not apostles. Look at the lost in hell. Suffering has effected no good in them. He that was filthy here is filthy there. He that was unjust in this life is unjust in the life to come. There is nothing in pain and suffering by their own natural operation that will tend to purification. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word, Lord, and we thank you that, Lord, we can know the end of the story and that, Lord, we can mourn, we can pray as, as we look at your judgments, Lord. And, Lord, may we pray, continue to pray, that the world will come to know you, Lord. That, Lord, there would be one more revival, one more great awakening, so that many sons and daughters would be saved before these days. But, Lord, as we look to the future, as we look to these things, Lord, we thank you that we will be spared from your wrath. And Lord, if these events begin to happen while we are yet here, Lord, we will look forward to to being raptured and being home with you. Lord, that we can return to this battle, the battle of Armageddon at your side, as your word says, that you will return with the saints. And Lord, we don't, even comprehend what that is going to be like. But Lord, we know that it will be glorious as you come and establish your reign on this earth. And so, Jesus, we thank you. We love you and we praise you, Lord. And God, bless this nation, our nation. Lord, may we return to you one more time before these days. And we thank you, Jesus, and we love you. And it's in your holy, precious, sinless name that we pray. Amen.